The Bob Murphy Show, episode 242. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today I am going to be living up to my earlier promise to do some economics episodes, unpacking the points I made at a recent Orlando Mises event with Jeff Deist and some others who were there at that event. I see Jeff and Demelza and Tho and all my friends. But before I jump into that, as I'm recording this, the Libertarian National Convention in Reno is just wrapping up. So right now, also, let me tell you the date because I'm going to be giving you some statistics from Fred, the St. Louis Federal Reserve site. And you may be curious to know like how recent are these data, depending on when you hear this. So for the record, I am recording this on Sunday, May 29th, 2022. Okay, so real quick on what happened in Reno. Many of you, whether you've officially heard me say it or just kind of got the vibe, I'm not into politics. That it's just, you can't speak your mind freely because there's coalitions and things. And like, oh, if you're kind of buddies with this guy over here, then he says something that's a little bit off. You got to keep your mouth shut and you got to go depending. Like if you were actually going to be a candidate, you have to just go raise money. I'm not very good at that, right? So that's not something I was ever into. So I've always just focused on, hey, I'm going to educate people regardless of what the strategy is for achieving liberty in our lifetimes or to make a better world for our children, that sort of thing. I thought the best thing I can do is help people understand the message of liberty and then whatever else others want to do, go ahead. God bless you. But let me just say, I didn't think that Dave Smith at all were going to have the success they did early on. Okay. Not because there's anything wrong with Dave. I'm just saying, you know, when they set out for themselves, the goal of like, we're going to take over the LP and make it cool and so forth. Like I just... My view was, hey, if these guys want to call us a bunch of Nazis and stuff, like, I don't need to hang out with you. So <laughs> so they did pull that off. I don't know all the, the results of all the individual things, but Angela McArdle won. And Dave just recently tweeted out saying, takeover complete. So I guess that's the official word there. Let me just say one other thing. because I, I haven't seen people pointing this out. So in his... I don't know if the term would be keynote address, but Justin Amash was a speaker at this convention. And there's a lot of buzz, people saying, oh my gosh, haha, Amash got the Mises Caucus people to boo Mises quotes. So if you go and look at what it is, Amash, his main point, at least in this part of the speech, is to say, we can't have ridiculously strict purity tests, otherwise we're not going to win elections. That say what you will, a political party is kind of impotent if it doesn't ever win. And so you need to appeal to at least a third of the country. I'm paraphrasing here, but this is the spirit of what he was saying. And then he summarized his own record as somebody in office, first at the state level and then the federal level, to sort of 
get across his libertarian bona fides. And he was saying, you know, I know some of you think I'm not libertarian enough or I'm not a real libertarian. And, you know, folks, let me just tell you, if that's your stance, I really don't think you understand the rest of America, something like that. And then to further bolster his position, Amash held up a copy of a Mises book. I think it was Mises' book, Liberalism, but I'm not sure about that. But I think that was, it was definitely a book by Mises. He does hold up the Mises book or whatever, made some points, and then said, so anyway, let me read some quotes from libertarians or thinkers and tell me what you guys think. And he starts reading them. And so he's reading quotes about what a libertarian believes or what the libertarian position is. And people are reacting and, and they're deliberately ones that would sound like it was like a lightweight, right? That somebody who's not a hardcore anarcho-capitalist Rothbardian. In particular, there was a quote, and I don't, I don't have Justin's video pulled up in front of me, so I'm not going to give you the exact quote, but it was something like, the libertarian is not an anarchist. There is a role for the state to enforce compliance with the laws for antisocial individuals, something like that. And the people, you know, some people in the crowd, you could, it, it wasn't like they were chanting to have Jesus executed or something, but it, there was some sporadic booing, all right? And then another one was, Justin read something like, the libertarian ultimately supports a world state where all the nations come together under a single rule of law or something like that. And then that, that did get a few more boos. And then Justin lets the cat out of the bag and says, ah, guess what, everybody? I was just reading to you Mises. So if Justin Amash and Louis van Mises aren't libertarian enough for you, you know, you're never going to win an election. What are you doing here? Something like that. Okay. So that's definitely, like I say, the spirit of what happened. So two things. One is because Dave Smith has addressed this type of concern. And Dave's point was that it's the wrong strategy for the libertarian party to put up sort of weak sauce candidates like Gary Johnson and Bill Weld, right? That it's a mistake to try to split the difference between the Republicans and the Democrats and to put up somebody who's inoffensive and not meaning like literally doesn't say bigoted things, but like someone who's not going to scare people, doesn't seem too radical, that that's the wrong strategy. Because if you're a third party candidate in today's political environment or anytime recently in U.S. history, you already have the deck stacked against you. Most people know correctly only Republicans or Democrats have any serious shot at being the next occupant of the White House, unless you're like a security guard or a mate or somebody or a cook who lives there. All right. So Dave's point was the only way you're going to capture the imagination and get people excited who are sick of the two-party system is if you have a somewhat... Maybe radical is not the right word, but definitely principled and consistent person who has an interesting message that seems to offer hope and a way out. And so it would be worth it for people to, quote, throw their vote away or waste their vote on that third party candidate if it was somebody who represented a genuine difference and solution. And so Dave's point was what you really don't want to do if you're running a third party is to put up somebody who's kind of sort of like the other two candidates, but just maybe a little bit better on certain key issues. That what's the point of that? No one's going to vote for that person. And also just more generally, Dave's point was that at least for the foreseeable future, the function of the Libertarian Party is as an educational vehicle 
to get the message out for liberty because people are inherently interested in people running for office. More people will listen to, oh, this is the libertarian candidate for president this cycle. Talk about, you know, what should the U.S. do in about Ukraine or what should we do about Yemen or what should we do about Social Security or Medicare, the discrepancy in funding and blah, 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 or the Federal Reserve. What should we do about that? More people will listen to a libertarian presidential candidate talk about those issues than they will listen to a senior fellow from the Mises Institute. And, you know, that's just true for sure. You can say it shouldn't be true, but it is. Just like more people listen to Ron Paul because he was running for president. All right, so that's what Dave's point was. And, you know, I know Scott Horton was involved with getting Dave, you know, on board with this message and so forth or this strategy. That was the idea that you you want to put up a great communicator and standard bearer as the Libertarian Party candidate, not because he's going to or she is going to be the next president, but because that's the way to get people interested in the message. Okay, so that's the theory, the strategy. Maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong. So on that score, what Justin Amash was saying and what Dave Smith are saying are really just disagreement and strategy. That Amash basically is saying, hey, we got to have a big tent and let's not throw stones at our candidates because they're not libertarian enough. And Dave's point is, we're going to lose the election regardless. At least we can put up a libertarian candidate who's a libertarian, <laughs> right? Like, what's the point? If people don't even learn what libertarianism means, because we're not going to win the election either way. Okay. And of course, on both of those things, it's not black and white. Both can understand the point that the other side is making, right? So Justin Amash would not say the Libertarian Party should nominate Dick Cheney and try to capture some Republican votes. And Dave Smith would not say we should say that you can't become a dues-paying member of the Libertarian Party unless you sign a pledge saying you hate the state and you think nuclear weapons should be owned by six-year-olds and be able to be purchased at Walgreens. All right, so there's nuance involved on both sides. Okay, but the other thing I want to say about Justin Amash's, oh, actually two more things. So one quick one, people were complaining about people setting up stuff behind Justin while he was giving his talk. And, and yeah, that was really distracting. And so given that that video could have gotten on C-SPAN or something potentially, that was just kind of goofy. So I don't know. But the last thing point I want to make is what Justin did, I'm virtually certain this happened, is Mises in the text kept referring to what the liberal believes. Because when Mises was writing, liberal did not mean what it means in today's climate. Mises meant, if you wanted to, I don't know if translate's the right word, if you wanted to add some nuance to it to make it clearer, you could put the word classical in front of it. So Mises would say, you know, the classical liberal supports the free movement of people around the globe, does not support national boundaries restricting workers from moving from one country to another in search of higher wages or whatever. The classical liberal believes in free trade and peace. And so just so you understand what happened. So Justin Amash, when he's reading these ostensible Mises quotes to the crowd and on some of them getting them to boo it, he was changing what the quote was. Okay, so Mises did not say the libertarian believes blah, 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 or the libertarian position is such and such. Mises said, the liberal believes, blah, blah, blah. The liberal position on this issue is such and such. And when Justin was reading this to the crowd, he just changed the word liberal to libertarian. It didn't say that he was changing it. All right? And so you, now, to be clear, I'm not saying 
he did something deliberately dishonest. But my point is, it's a little bit weird for everyone then to be running around laughing and saying, ha ha, the Mises caucus idiots just booed their hero or their idol. You can Justin Amash got him when he changed the quotes. And in particular, if Amash had not changed the quotes, nobody would have booed. Okay, so if he just left it as liberal, some of them would have totally gotten what it was and would have been fine with it. Or they would have been confused and thought he meant liberal like Rachel Maddow or something or Paul Krugman, you know, in terms of what liberal means in today's U.S. political context. And so they wouldn't have booed. They just would have been like, yeah, I hate those liberals. Or if he had been more precise, he could have changed it to classical liberal. Because again, just to be clear, what I'm saying is, and this isn't something I'm making up now because, oh, Justin Amash got a good, landed a good punch on the Mises caucus and I'm trying to defend them or something. No, no, this is, we've dealt with this before when I'm explaining Mises to a younger audience who's not familiar with the way the word liberal is used. So let me finish the point. It's not correct. It's not the best way to translate it to say, oh, wherever you see in his writing, Mises used the word liberal just put in libertarian because that's really what he means. No, that's not correct. The best thing to do to clarify for somebody who isn't going to understand what he means by that word liberal is to put the adjective classical in front of it and to say the classical liberal believes blah, 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 blah. Right? And like that book is titled Liberalism in the Classical Tradition. I don't know if Mises chose that subtitle or just in later versions the publishers put that in there so that people would understand what Mises was talking about. I don't know that detail, but that's what the book cover says. Again, I'm pretty sure that's the book that Amash was using, but maybe it was a different one. Okay, and again, I'm not just being nitpicky here, grasping at straws to diffuse the embarrassment. It's, it's a legitimate distinction. The classical liberal of you know late 1800s, early 1900s is not the same thing as a post-1950s libertarian. The post-1950s libertarian obviously drew from that tradition and grew out of it, but it's not the same thing. And specifically, if you had asked me three weeks ago, hey, Bob, is a classical liberal an anarchist? I would have said no by definition. Well, I mean, not by definition, but I would have said no. The overwhelming majority of people who were classical liberals by their own admission, like and by us now looking back and applying that term, were not anarchists. That's not what it meant. The classical liberal, you could say was a minarchist maybe, but that's even that's a little bit not quite right. That you know, you could read Mises' book and understand this is what the classical liberal believes. And it certainly wasn't anarchism. Right? So it's not just a matter of what do they feel about the proper role of government. It's more than that. But it's not anarchism. Whereas if you said, Bob, if you asked me three weeks ago, is a libertarian an anarchist? Then I would have said, not necessarily. A lot of them are, and a lot of them think that the actual nature of their perspective implies anarchism. So yes, there are a lot of people who call themselves libertarian who are not anarchists, but the ones who are anarchists think that that's the logical culmination of their position. And they think that the other libertarians who aren't anarchists are being inconsistent. Whereas nobody would ever say among the classical liberals, well, I don't say nobody would ever say, but the way you would have to argue that the classical liberal would ultimately lead into anarcho-capitalism is through subsidiarity and secession. 
And I have seen some people argue that, that like Mises, in other words, if you, if you want to grab Mises thought and then say, suppose you wanted to say Mises framework allows for or implies anarcho-capitalism in a Rothbardian sense, the way you would do it is not through, you know, oh, Mises says that you have the right to do whatever you want so long as you don't infringe on the rights of others. Mises doesn't believe in natural rights. He doesn't believe in natural law. So you wouldn't say that. He's a, I would say, consequentialist. I mean, I think Mises might have used the term utilitarian, but that's a bit confusing. All right. The way you would do it, and the way I've seen some people associated with the Mises Institute argue, is to say when you look at Mises' views on subsidiarity and whether political entities should have the right to withdraw from or secede from larger political units, he sort of gives a blanket endorsement of that and only stops short, you know, well, gee, then why couldn't the individual, you know, like the guy living in his house, why couldn't he just withdraw from even the town and just say, I'm my own sovereign person, you know, my home is my castle and I'm the king on my land. And then effectively my little property here where my house sits is like basically its own country. And Mises has passages in some of his work that he's basically okay with that, he's, except for practical reasons. Like, well, yeah, it's in practice, it would be hard for that to work. And it has to do largely with Mises' mechanical views of, well, you got to have a police force and stuff, and you know, how would that work if just each household is its own country? But that's the way you would do it, right? So my point is, had Justin Amash said from the stage, hey, folks, you ready for this quote? The classical liberal is not an anarchist. And then looking around to see what the reaction was, people wouldn't have booed that. They would have been like, yeah, no kidding. So again, it was only by changing what Mises said was Amash able to get people to quote, boo Mises. And again, I'm, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying Amash did something dishonest to trick them, but what he may have thought was a harmless update of the language actually introduced a change that got the result he was looking for. Hey, everybody, just your usual reminder, if you like what you're hearing here on the show, please consider contributing. Any amount helps, and a recurring monthly contribution is the best of all. For more details and to see the special perks you can get, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. All right, so let's now move on to what the main point of this episode was supposed to be. I am going to argue that the Fed really hasn't been tightening much. Now, by the, when I was in Orlando with Jeff, I had a much stronger case because all the indicators I was looking at all moved in one direction, whereas now one of the indicators, as I'll explain here in 20 minutes or so, flipped the other way. But let me just go ahead and get into it. So the question is, is the Fed actually tightening? Because they've been talking about tightening since the start of this year, and lately the stock market has been doing very poorly, presumably in response to, oh, the Fed's tightening. And so I, even I was surprised when I went to look at the numbers, getting ready for that talk for Orlando to see what they were. Okay. So the most obvious thing to check is what's the Fed doing with its balance sheet, right? So by the way, with all this stuff, folks, if you don't know the mechanics of this, I would point you to my free, you know, the online PDF version's free, my new book from Mises called Money Mechanics. So there, you can look at all this stuff in as much detail as you want in terms of how does this stuff work. So to me, the top level, like, is the Fed trying to tighten or not? The thing you would look at is, the thing they have complete control over is how much base money exists in the system 
based on the Fed's asset holdings, right? So when the Federal Reserve buys assets, it electronically creates new money out of thin air, right? So if like if the Fed is buying $10 billion worth of bonds from bond dealers, the bond dealers hand over the bonds to the Fed. The Fed puts it on a balance sheet on the asset side. And then the Fed wires $10 billion in funds, you know, electronically to those sellers. And then in their own bank accounts, their checking account balances all go up collectively by $10 billion. So where did that $10 billion come from? It's not that the Fed had its own checking account somewhere that had a lot of money in it. And now it has $10 billion less. That's not what happens. That $10 billion just gets created and added to the system, right? The Fed has, if you will, an infinite checking account balance. I'm saying that like metaphorically, it's not that the Fed literally has a checking account balance that has like a the symbol for infinity on it. And then you say, oh, infinity minus 10 billion is still infinity. No, the, the Fed doesn't do that. I'm just saying by the act of the Fed buying assets, it legally is allowed to write checks to other entities. Those entities deposit the checks with their own banks. The banks coordinate with the Fed. The Fed says, yep, that's a legitimate check. We did write that. And then increases those commercial banks' reserves with the Fed by the corresponding amount. And then the bank in turn knows it's okay to credit their customer's own checking account with that same number. Okay. And then going the other way, if the Fed wanted to sell off assets, let's say the Fed sells a billion dollars worth of bonds, or let's say of the bonds sitting on its balance sheet, a billion dollars worth of maturity occurs so that the, you know, the people that owed money on those bonds, whether it was the treasury or coming from mortgage-backed securities, and let's say a billion dollars in payment comes into the Fed and extinguishes one of the, you know, some of those bonds because they mature, if the Fed just sits pat, then that billion dollars disappears from the system, right? So the bond falls off the balance sheet because it matured away. And so for a normal entity like a corporation or a household, your balance sheet wouldn't shrink when a bond matures. Instead, what would happen is the asset that was the bond that you know had a market value of approaching a billion dollars as the maturity date approached, the bond would disappear and then you'd have the billion dollars in cash sitting on your balance sheet because somebody would have had to pay you the billion dollars in cash, right? So your, your assets would still be the same size. It's just their composition would have changed. But with the Fed, it doesn't do that. The Fed does not have dollars on its balance sheet because again, the Fed has as many dollars as it wants. So it'd be pointless to put that on there. Otherwise, if you did, its assets would always be infinite, right? So when the Fed gets paid back a loan or a bond matures and because somebody pays it to them, its balance sheet actually shrinks. So, you know, the first thing I look at when I was asking earlier this year, hey, the Fed keeps talking about how it's going to tighten. Markets are responding. People are wondering about, oh, is inflation going to come down now? By which they mean consumer price inflation. I was going and checking the Fed's balance sheet. And throughout this year, it kept increasing. All right, so I'm looking at it right now, a, a graph of it, just to give you an idea. So as of December 29th, the thing I'm looking at is weekly. So as of the last week in December, the balance sheet was stood at $8.8 trillion in assets. And then as of April 13th, the balance sheet stood at well, it would, you'd actually be rounding up to 9.0. It's 8.9654, blah, blah, blah. But if you're rounding to the first decimal, you'd round up to 9 trillion. Okay, so from late December all the way up through April 13th, 
the Fed's balance sheet was actually increasing still. I mean, the, the rate had slowed way down, right? So the slope of the balance sheet line, if you're looking at a graph of it, was steeper in 2021 than it was near the end of 2022. So it did start slowing the rate of assets. But the Fed still on net was adding more assets to its balance sheet, meaning more high-powered money was still being added to the system, even when it was ostensibly saying, oh, we're going to start tightening here. And then the latest number I have is May 25th, where the balance sheet stood at $8.914 trillion. Okay, so it's come down a tiny little bit since the peak on April 13th, but not too much. And it is still, as of May 25th, right now, it's still higher. In other words, if you went and looked at how high was it in mid-February, right now, the balance sheet is higher than it had ever been up through February 16th. Okay, so it's a little bit lower now than it was at various points after February 16th. Okay, but point being to say is the Fed tightening this year, looking at its assets, it's pretty close to where it's been. It's more that it's just stopped growing the balance sheet. And like I say, yeah, it's come down a tiny little bit since its peak in mid-April. Okay, so that's one huge line of evidence to say the Fed really, then what I, the way I described it to the people in Orlando is I said, if you want to use a car analogy, the Fed has taken its foot off the gas but it really hasn't even tapped the brakes yet. Okay, now you might say, well, what about interest rates? Hasn't the Fed been raising interest rates? And so, yes, the federal funds effective rate. So if you don't know, the federal funds rate is the interest rate that commercial banks charge each other for unsecured overnight loans of reserves. All right, so... It is the rate that the Fed targets. And so when people say, oh, the Fed cut or raised interest rates, that's what they're talking about. In the way the Fed, well, this is going to be complicated. Historically, the way the Fed would raise or lower that rate is by adjusting the reserves in the system. It would buy or sell assets to change the quantity of reserves because it was the reserves that the commercial banks were lending to each other overnight. But the interest rate is calculated in terms of an annual percentage rate, even though the loan itself is only for a day. Okay. However, since the fall of 2008, the Fed has switched tactics. So it still targets that federal funds rate. That's what the Fed means. And it, you know, it gives announcements as to what its target is for that particular interest rate. But the way it actually moves it is not directly by adjusting reserves. It's by paying that the Fed itself pays an interest rate on reserves. All right, so that's an innovation, and that introduces a complication into all this. So I think I should go into this briefly because it's relevant. It's not just a trivial detail. So the reason the Fed did that, well, at least the official reason, some who are more cynical would just say, oh, the banks were in trouble, and the Fed just came up with a way to start shoveling billions of dollars of extra income to them by paying interest on reserves that the banks kept with the Fed, whereas you know before... The Fed would not have paid them to keep reserves parked at the Fed. And another way I like to describe it is, hey, everybody, did you know that in the fall of 2008, the Fed began paying banks to not make loans to their customers? And people are, what? And that's one way of correctly explaining what the Fed did, even though that's not the rationale they would have said. 
So if you ask, what's the official Fed rationale? Why did they start in the fall of 2008 after the financial crisis hit? Why did the Fed begin paying interest to the commercial banks for keeping their reserves parts of the Fed rather than, you know, making new loans? And from the individual bank's perspective, the reserves get lent out. Well, what the Fed said at the time was with traditional open market operations and how does the Fed, what was the textbook way that the Fed would implement policy before the crisis hit? And again, when I say crisis, I'm talking about the financial crisis in 2008. It would be by buying and selling assets and adjusting reserves, right? So if the Fed wanted to raise the federal funds rate, it would suck reserves out of the system. And how would it do that? It would sell off assets from its balance sheet. And as I explained a couple minutes ago, the act of doing that in terms of the accounting reduces the amount of reserves or high-powered money in the system. Then when the Fed sells assets, that means somebody in the private sector has to buy them. And so they have to give money to the Fed. And so money given to the Fed just disappears. Just like when the Fed buys assets, that money is created out of nothing. Okay. So then by reducing the total supply of reserves, that would make the reserves more scarce and then so the banks lending reserves to each other would end up charging a higher interest rate on that because there's fewer reserves to go around. If the banks aren't flush with the reserves, then they're going to charge more other things equal to lend them. And that's why the Fed selling off assets and sucking out reserves would tend to raise interest rates, particularly short-term interest rates. And then going the other way, if the Fed wanted to lower rates what would they do? They would buy assets, create reserves, add reserves to the system. Now reserves are more plentiful. The supply of reserves have gone up. And so the interest rate that banks charge to lend out some reserves goes down. Again, other things equal. Okay. So that was the traditional mechanism that you know would have been taught in an orthodox money and banking class up until the financial crisis. So the problem was in the fall of 2008, in order to help, the Fed wanted to shore up the mortgage-backed security market, right? That there were all these assets that were tied to real estate and a panic had ensued. And it was like a cascading problem where because some of these assets became doubted and it wasn't clear whether the people were going to make their payments, the asset lost value. And then other firms that were holding those assets then got in trouble because the value of their collateral went down. And so they had to start selling off other assets to raise money to meet their margin requirements. And then this like sort of fire sale process started kicking in where it was just a cascade where more and more firms had to sell. And then that just caused the prices of these assets to drop more and more. And then it was just, you know, that made other firms in trouble and they had to sell and blah, blah, blah. So in order to short circuit that, the Fed came in and said, no, we are going to buy up these mortgage-backed securities and put a floor under their price. And it's not just our direct action, but the markets seeing that that's what we're doing, that will stop the panic. And then we'll nip this collapse in the bud. That was the idea. But part of the issue was, if you remember, energy prices in particular, like oil prices, were hitting record highs in the summer of 2008. So the Fed wanted to tighten for price inflation reasons, at the same time that it wanted to be buying up these mortgage-backed securities to stop the carnage in those markets. And so since those two things 
going opposite directions, right? The Fed wanted to be buying a lot of assets, which tends to create money and push down interest rates. At the same time, the Fed wanted to be tightening by raising interest rates to stem price inflation, consumer price inflation. The Fed wanted to divorce those two tools. It wanted to decouple its asset purchases from its interest rate targets. And so that's why the Fed said, okay, we need to, they already had the statutory authority, but it was supposed to kick in later. And that's why the Fed just implemented this new policy earlier than scheduled to be able to pay interest on reserves. Okay, so the idea was, oh, we can flood the market with reserves by buying all these mortgage-backed securities. And strictly speaking, they made loans to these maiden lane LLCs that then went out and bought the securities because it was illegal technically for the Fed to be buying these things. So the idea was the Fed could go ahead and buy whatever it wanted, flood the market with reserves, but then pay the banks and say, oh, here, we'll give you whatever, 25 basis points if you keep those reserves parked with us. So that would put a floor. If they said, we'll give you 2%, you keep those reserves parked with us, that would put a floor. The federal funds rate would not fall below 2% if that was the policy, because why would a commercial bank lend to anybody else, even another commercial bank, if the Fed itself is paying 2%, right? Because the Fed's good for it. The Fed's not going to be unable to come up with the money. Okay, so the Fed could by paying interest on reserves, could set a floor, make sure that the interest rate it wanted didn't go below that level, regardless of how much it flooded the markets with reserves by buying assets. Okay, so that was the idea. So now when you ask, is the Fed tightening or not? It's like I say, traditionally, you would just say, well, what's it doing with its balance sheet? That's kind of like the high level way to look. But now there's a second thing you could ask. You could say, well, even if they're not reducing the amount of assets they hold, are they increasing the interest rate that they pay to commercial banks to keep their reserves parked at the Fed? And arguably, that would be a form of tightening too. Okay, so I'm not as sure about that, by the way. Like this, again, this is a new area, and it's interesting to think through the consequences, especially from the perspective of Austrian business cycle theory. Like normally in Austrian business cycle theory, we say, oh, the Fed causes an unsustainable boom with cheap money, flooding the market with credit, that doesn't represent genuine savings and that pushes down interest rates to artificially low levels. And then when things start overheating, the banks chicken out and they begin tightening. And then they, so they suck money out of the system and interest rates go up. And then in the tight money regime, a lot of enterprises fail and that's the bust. That's right. So that's kind of the quick and dirty version of it, of Austrian business cycle theory. So then the question is, well, wait a minute, what if the Fed starts tightening, not by sucking money out of the system, but just by paying banks a higher interest rate. So that does raise market interest rates, right? Especially short-term ones. But is that really the same thing as tightening if the amount of money has not been reduced, right? So that's an interesting theoretical question that I'm not fully satisfied one way or the other on. But we can certainly ask the question and answer it in terms of the mechanics. So yes, the federal funds rate had been gently rising over time under Yellen and Powell, right? I'm just forgetting exactly when Powell came in. But certainly throughout 2018, 2019, the federal funds rate kept getting raised periodically. And it had gotten up to 2.4% by the summer of 2019. Then they cut looks like August of 2019, they cut again in September, they cut again in November, and then going into 2020. And then 
in March 2020, they started drastically cutting it because of coronavirus panic. And then after that, you know, it was at basically zero, it was, you know, hovering above zero for a long time. And then they finally raised it in March. So it went from, I'm looking at the effective federal funds rate, like the actual market rate. So it was at 0.08% as of March 16th, 2022. And then going into early April, it was up to 0.33. And then in May, early May, it went, it jumped up to 0.83. And as of May 26th, which is the last date that I have here, it's at 0.83%. Okay, so you could say, well, in a sense, the Fed has raised extremely short-term rates from 0.08% in mid-March to 0.83% in late May. So that's something, right? And yeah, it is. But when you ask, okay, what's happening though to price inflation? Okay, so that's nominal interest rates. But what if price inflation is raging so much that actually the real interest rate is dropping? Okay, so Mises has a discussion about this, that apparently in interwar Germany, a lot of economists, when they were trying to understand, like, why is the currency collapsing? The German um, mark, why was it collapsing with incredible rates of price inflation? And apparently some economists thought, well, it couldn't be the Reich Bank's policies. It couldn't be monetary inflation causing it. Because look, at they have interest rates are historically high levels. Look at how high their, their interest rate is. So that's a very tight policy. So what the heck's happening? And Mises' point was, well, no, it was, I'm making these numbers up, but it's like if prices are rising at 1,000% a month and the central bank raises interest rates from 5% up to 100% at an annual rate, that might seem like incredible tightening, but not if prices are going up 1,000% a month. Because in real terms, then that's still like negative interest rates. You're still borrowing when prices are a certain level. And then the marks that you're paying back the loan with a year later are worth basically nothing. And so you would have to have a nominal interest rate that was really high just to match the price inflation, let alone any you know sort of real component on top of that. All right. So in a highly in price inflationary environment, just because nominal interest rates start moving up a little bit. So yeah, that's tightening relative to not moving them up. But to say overall, is money becoming tighter? If you're using the interest rate as a sign, an indicator, the real interest rate is probably more relevant than the nominal one. All right, so there's that element. And then in particular, though, if we want to ask, is the Fed tightening a sign of an impending recession? Like, are they tightening enough that they're going to tip the economy into recession? The answer as of when I gave that talk in Orlando was no, it was going the, the wrong way. And so here's in particular what I mean. I looked at the the yield curve, specifically the 10-year treasury constant maturity yield minus the three-month treasury constant maturity yield. And that's the best indicator of when we say the inverted yield curve, quote, predicts recession. So by the way, I'm not, I can't get into it right now. It's, I've already gone long on this episode. I just want to finish this point. I'll wrap up. But if you don't know what I'm talking about or you vaguely have heard those terms, but you never saw it spelled out, Again, my Understanding Money Mechanics book, I have a whole chapter on this stuff. Okay, so check it out. But there's this relationship that says if the 
10-year yield minus the three-month yield, that's typically positive, right? Because normally the yields on 10-year treasuries are higher than on three-month treasuries. The intuition being, if you're going to lend your money to the government for 10 years, you want a higher interest rate than if it's just a real short-term loan, okay? However, in certain circumstances, for whatever reason, the yield on the three-month is higher than the yield on the 10-year. And that's when it's called an inverted yield curve. And it just so happens, going back to World War II, every time the yield curve defined in that way inverts, within eight to 18 months or so, there's a recession. And going the other way, every time there's been a recession since World War II, there has been a prior inversion of the yield curve. Okay, so if you correctly define this metric, it has no false positives and no false negatives in terms of, quote, predicting an impending recession. And so when the Fed began tightening, at least according to the financial press, I just assumed that the yield curve was going to be flattening, meaning you know, going from positive to approaching zero and then flipping. And in fact, the 10-year, two-year spread briefly did go negative a few weeks ago, or at this point, more, more than a month probably. But that particular measure doesn't have as much predictive success as the 10-year and the three-month. And so I checked the 10-year and the three-month, and that spread was increasing up through May 6th that that spread was higher in May 6th than it had been going back years. And then since May 6th, it started coming down pretty fast. Okay, so it's still, as of May 25th, 2022, the 10-year, three-month spread is still 1.69 percentage points. So still not zero or negative, but it had been, as of May 6th, it had been up at 2.27 percentage points. Okay, so, which again was higher than it had been you know, the way I've, I got the graph zoomed in right now, going back at least to early 2018. Okay, so what does that mean? What was happening is because of rising price inflation, nominal yields on 10-year treasuries were zooming up throughout 2022, right? Because price inflation was higher than most analysts thought it was going to be. And so people kept updating their inflation projections. And so in terms of the interest rate charged on a 10-year loan, those numbers were getting bumped up, not because people thought, oh, the economy is going to grow more over the next 10 years than we thought six months ago. The opposite happened. People had, were more pessimistic about real growth. The reason I think for the increase in yields on 10-year treasuries was because of price inflation, that people thought, oh, the Fed is going to let the economy run hot for longer than we thought six months ago. And so that's why yields on 10-year treasuries were zooming up. So even as yields on three months were rising, partly because the Fed was raising rates on the short end, yields on the 10-year treasury were rising even faster. And so that's why the spread of the 10-year minus the three-month was increasing because the 10-year was growing faster than the three-month. And so that's why throughout 2022, up until May 6th, you know, it bounced around, but there was a general upward trajectory of that spread. So again, that spread needs to go negative in order to signal that, oh, because of Fed tightening, there's an impending recession on the, on the table now. So now it's turned around, like I say, and come back down because the 10-year yields have finally turned around and starting in mid-May or early May while the three-month keeps increasing. So now that gap is shrinking. And if that trend continues, at some point, the 10-year yield will fall below the three-month yield and then we'll have an inverted yield curve on that particular measure. And then if history repeats itself, that means we will have a recession soon afterward. And we say, well, what do you mean by soon? Well, I was just eyeballing it 
for the last four recessions, the shortest the delay was was about eight months. All right. So there were a couple of times where the inversion occurred in June or July, and then the recession officially begins like the next March, something like that. Okay. So my point is, even when this yield curve goes negative or inverts, the spread goes negative, it doesn't mean, oh, there's a recession officially. It's like once we go down through history and then look back in terms of when they officially date the recession, probably it would begin some point, eight months to whatever, a year and change after that inversion happens, at least if the pattern since World War II holds up. So again, with all this stuff, humans have free will. They can do whatever they want. Maybe this will be the time that the yield curve signal finally doesn't work right. And again, this stuff, it, it lines up with Austrian business cycle theory. The, the predictive, so-called predictive power of the yield curve, where the inversion signals an impending recession, this isn't just some empirical correlation that there's no theoretical basis for. It actually does make sense if you believe in Austrian business cycle theory on theoretical grounds. Okay, so again, to summarize, yeah, I think a recession is inevitable given the easy money policies of the Fed. We have an unsustainable boom that happened, so there's got to be a bust. But in terms of the timing, even though the markets are doing very poorly lately, presumably because of Fed talk of tightening or whatever, in terms of what they've actually done so far, they really even haven't significantly reduced their balance sheet at all. And even though they are raising short-term rates, up through May 6th, they weren't even keeping pace with the general market increase in longer rates and still were a decent ways away from the most relevant yield curve inverting. And even when that happens, historically, we've had at least another eight months or so before the recession officially begins. So there you go. Okay, folks, thanks for your attention and I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.